2: On news radio 680
3: WPTF and I'm Doug Lewis certified financial planner and I'm Deborah Lewis certified financial planner and we're here to answer your questions for the next hour I think
2: it might be helpful for us to go over a retirement income needs checklist let's do that
1: first remember analyze your present situation your income your expenses your assets and your liabilities
2: Secondly, it's good to determine which of your expenses are likely to decrease after you you retire and which are likely to increase.
1: Third, set your financial monthly and annual retirement goals.
2: Fourthly, find out how much you can expect to receive from Social Security, Veterans Benefits, as well as pension plans.
1: That's right, Linda. Fifth, estimate how much you should receive from the interest earned on savings, investments, and from real estate rentals.
2: Sixth, review your insurance policies to see whether they meet your present as well as your future needs.
1: Seven, know the amount that you must begin setting aside monthly and yearly to close the gap between your retirement income goals and your potential retirement income.
2: Eighth, try to pay off significantly large bills now to avoid facing them when you retire.
1: And ninth, make sure that you've got sufficient health insurance coverage in place these are the nine areas on the retirement income needs checklist, Lynn.
2: Doug, along with these issues, I've gotten a number of callers, in fact, consistently, people that are either having early retirement issues or early out. As people are getting older, they're being asked to leave or are retiring because uh, it's time time to do it mm-hmm. or it's feasible. And sometimes they have a number of options that they can decide on. And What I was wondering, if you could give some advice for some of the people that are are trying to decide whether or not to take a lump sum option or not.
1: The first thing is to decide whether we're talking about the qualified or the non-qualified portion. The qualified portion is the 401k plan, the 403b plan, the retirement lump, okay? The money that's been pre-tax, that's qualified money. And there are options that you have there. Everybody has options there. The second is with regard to non-qualified. Some companies offer you a lump of money or a check for the rest of your life. Some of them go ahead and offer you a lump of your salary and so forth. So we need to go ahead and talk about the differences between these two. Let's focus on the qualified portion. First of all, the qualified money is going to be offered to you in One of two ways, first of all, a lump that you can take or, in some cases, a monthly check. That's a typical pension option that you might have.
3: Call me, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner at Lewis Financial Management, 919-872-7000, 919-872-7000. Let's pause here for a caller.
1: George, this is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. How can I help you this evening? Hi, Doug. I'm a first-time listener, and I'm enjoying the show. Well, good.
0: Uh, I got sort of a three-part question. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, I would need a financial planner, but how would you suggest that someone make that determination? Uh, Maybe uh, how how large should the estate be? Uh, If, in fact, you decide a, a certified planner is needed, how do you go about selecting one? And uh, third, what would these services cost?
1: All right. Question number one: How big an estate is necessary for the need for needing a planner?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Question number two is how to find one. Mm-hmm. And question number three is how much it costs. That's right. What should right. you expect to? Okay. To let's let's server. take them one by one. First of all, and a lot of people would disagree with me, but my answer to your first question, how big an estate is necessary for financial planning, or I think you first stated it, how do I know or what type of person needs a financial planner?
0: That's right. Maybe not the size of the state. That's but...
1: exactly right. There is one type of person who does not need a financial planner. And that type of person is the one who thinks he knows it all and doesn't want advice. Okay. Anybody other than that needs a financial planner. But believe it or not, and I don't mean to make a loose joke. I know a lot of people who fall in the first category. Mm-hmm. I And very often, they are wealthy people. Very often, they are wealthy people. As a matter of fact, I hate to say it, but there are a lot of doctors that I've met through the years that do not need or want financial planners because they like giving advice, not receiving advice. Okay? So the first thing of who needs a financial planner, it's a question of inside yourself. Are you looking for advice? Okay, now number two, how big, well, to come back to the question of the estate, it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't matter. I've had people that have come to see me and Linda, and it's a state employee who's got a $10,000 CD, and she just wants to know how to reposition it and get a better interest. You see what I mean? We've had people who have come to us that make a half million dollars a year, and they want other questions. The question is not the size of the estate for going to see a financial planner.
0: Well, I'm somewhere in between those two.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Number two, if a person is, is is giving you financial plans for free, then you got exactly the value of what you paid for. Mm-hmm. All right. Anybody who says to you, I'm a financial planner and I do financial plans for free, that's not a financial planner. That's a salesperson. Right. They're okay. Com- they're printing computer printouts, which are sales tools. They are usually insurance agents or security salespeople. Okay. That doesn't mean that a financial planner may not be selling securities or insurance in addition to doing the planning, Mm -hmm, but you want to make sure that what you're getting is advice and you're paying for advice, okay, and that you should have no constraints upon you to buy anything.
3: If you'd like further information, call us at 919-872-7000 or go to our website, dougandlinda.com that's dougandlinda.com
1: now how much should you pay there are different ways of of compensating a financial planner some charge by the hour others charge by the plan and I'll define a plan in a second and others go ahead and charge uh, a flat annual fee which encompasses hours and certain services and then they're all variations in between. When you meet with a prospective financial planner, you should discuss the fee arrangement that you're going to be comfortable with. Uh, there, there are as many variations on the fee schedules uh, as you can imagine. If a financial planner, a so-called financial planner, is not producing financial plans for the bulk of what they do for their living and for their days, you know, during the year or during the week, then they're not financial planners. So you want to always ask that question. So what is a financial plan? Well, a financial plan will be a document that analyzes all of the seven areas of your financial world. It covers your goals, your objectives, and analyzes your cash flow position, your financial statement information, your investment portfolio, your insurance. Do you have too much or too little? Your estate, your taxes, your retirement, and so on. This document is an analytical tool that the planner should then use to approach your situation. Everybody doesn't need a financial plan, but everybody does need some sort of planning. You see what I'm saying?
0: Uh, yes, I do. The,
1: the plan itself, in my and and, and I don't want to go ahead and mention any numbers across the air, but because each planner will have different categories of where he feels a person needs a financial plan done. The person who comes in with a $10,000 CD does not need to go ahead and spend $2,000 for a financial plan. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, they do need to be free from a salesperson trying to sell them something. The other category I think is important for you to understand is in looking for a planner, find out what type of ongoing planning they do. What type of reports are produced after the plan has been produced with the recommendations? Do you get quarterly reports? Do you get monthly statements? And so forth. Does that help? Surely does. How uh, How old are you, George? I'm 56. 56. Well, you're in a classic age, the pre-retirement age. Are you working now?
0: Uh, yes, I am. Mm-hmm.
1: uh And how much is your income right now?
0: Uh, hundred and well, all total, hundred and thirty, hundred and forty.
1: Hundred and forty thousand dollars a year. Is your wife working?
0: Uh, yes, she is.
1: What's her income?
0: Uh, about twenty.
1: Her income is twenty thousand. You have an investment portfolio that's what we call non-qualified, uh, meaning meaning not retirement.
0: Uh, yes. Uh huh. All
1: right. How are you positioned there? What do you have there?
0: Uh, stock, but some stock, individual, but mostly mutual funds.
1: Stocks and mutual funds. How much do you have in your stocks?
0: Uh, about eighty.
1: Eighty thousand in stocks and mutual funds.
0: I would say probably.
1: 50,000 50, in mutual funds. And cash and money market and CDs? Uh, 50,000. 50,000. That's too much, by the way. to be uh, holding in cash. That's why I was thinking about this. It is. Yeah, you shouldn't have that much right in today's market. You should start with an emergency fund. How about your retirement accounts? What do you have in qualified monies? Uh, a
0: deferred compensation plan of about, uh, 150.
1: Uh, do you have any 401k or profit sharing or pension
0: uh well the deferred the deferred comp was through a okay well I, yeah I have a pension a pension plan
1: uh-huh how much is there
0: uh well i'm drawing on that
1: oh you're already taking your already pension
0: drawing, yeah I've, I've uh i'm taking the pension from one job and, and working on another
1: I see what you're saying well, number 1, you definitely need financial planning. Okay. I mean, that's for sure, uh because you're at an age where you're you're what we call pre-retirement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At 59 and a half, you're able to go ahead and start of uh, drawing out from retirement plans without being able to without having to pay your 10% penalty. Mm-hmm. You ought to be preparing for what we call financial independence, which is a posture in which your capital base is supporting your lifestyle. Do you know what your in what your living expenses are running, George? Uh, no. That's the beginning point to financial planning I should point out to you. A financial plan and a financial planner should begin by focusing on your living expense needs. Okay. For example, if you're spending 3,000 a month or 36,000 on an annual basis because some expenses are not monthly like vacations, gifts and clothing. But if you're spending let's say thirty six thousand, let's say forty thousand a year, all right, then we should look at an asset base that can produce forty thousand a year in income. Now if your pen how much is your pension, by the way?
0: Uh fifty thousand a year.
1: All right. If you've got fifty 50- and is that for a lifetime? Yes. Uh huh. Well then you're looking very good because unless your expenses are very high. <laughs> a Thank you so much.
2: You can call me at the office at eight seven two seven thousand. Eight seven two seven thousand. Okay. I'll be happy you. to send you something. Thank you, Lenny. All right. And thank you for joining us on Money Matters with Doug Lewis. Why should I or anyone else invest in a mutual fund?
1: Many people don't even know what is a mutual fund.
2: A mutual fund is a regulated company that pulls money from many individual investors through the sale of shares. In turn, it buys stocks, it buys bonds, it buys other assets on the shareholders' behalf. That's right. The price of the shares are called the net asset value. Right. And it increases or it decreases depending on the current value of the fund's investment holdings as well as its liabilities. Now, shareholders may receive income from these funds or they may profit or lose primarily from the sale of their shares. And it would be as much uh, as they would by investing in stocks.
1: That's right. The main advantage is diversification. If, In other words, if you're going to invest in a stock, it makes sense to invest in a group of stocks. That's diversification. If you're going to invest in a bond, you should invest in a group of bonds. That's diversification. A mutual fund offers diversification. Number two, the most important thing is the management. Professional management. A mutual fund offers professional management. Instead of you being the one to decide when you're going to sell your stock, the mutual fund manager buys and sells stocks for you. And I guess the third advantage is To investing or why a person should invest is it doesn't cost very much. Most people don't know that. They think you have to have lots. But they're designed for the small investor to come in and with $50 or $100 or whatever they wanted, they can invest in mutual funds. And I guess another advantage I can think of is you can have automatic reinvesting of your dividends. You can't do that with individual stocks. And of course, the main reason that a lot of people do it is you get automatic liquidity. You can sell your fund any moment. So... Uh, those are some of the things that just pop into my head right away about why invest in a mutual fund.
2: If we can be of any further assistance to you, just give us a call. The number here in Raleigh is 872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Doug, we had a caller that called into the office earlier this week, and let me give you a little bit about his scenario, and let me ask you a question that he asked me. Uh, This gentleman is 35. Mm -hmm. He's married, but he has no children, so he's a... A dink. Dual income, dink. no children.
1: Dual income, no kids. We call them dinks. That's right.
2: And this gentleman owns a home. Uh, both he and his wife work. They have a combined income of about 65000
1: 65000 How old are they?
2: Uh, well, he's 35, so I presume she's in that same age range. Okay. Now, their home is valued at about 190000 and their mortgage is 55000
1: the home's worth $190,000. they have only right. got $55,000 mortgage left. Right. Okay.
2: And they have a stock mutual fund portfolio of about between ten and $15,000. Uh-huh. uh huh About maybe 7500 in their IRAs. And he also has 35000 in his corporation's retirement fund. It may be a 401k, I, I presume. He has some CDs.
1: How much does he have in CDs?
2: 100000
1: He's got a hundred thousand dollars in CDs. How much was in mutual funds?
2: About ten to fifteen thousand.
1: Ten to fifteen thousand dollars, two earner income. Right. No children. Right. He's thirty-five. Right. Fifty-five thousand dollar mortgage. Okay.
2: All right. Now his question was, would you recommend paying off the mortgage and being debt free? Now he doesn't have any children. They are planning uh on having children sometime here in no, the future? No,
1: not unless he's very paranoid. But the age of thirty-five, what would be the goal? I, uh, no, he could do a lot better having his equity out of the home working for him, especially if they've got a hundred thousand dollars in liquid funds pl- in the CDs plus fifteen thousand more in mutual funds. What they ought to be doing, if they don't have any children, they're both earning in, uh, they're both earning money, but you know, two earner income. I. Uh, no, I don't. I, don't, I, I think he'd be, he should be going the other way unless there's a comfort factor. If he's not worried about his job, he ought to be going the other way. No, there's no sense in him paying off his mortgage.
2: Well, is he going to be taxed on those CDs?
1: Is he going to be taxed on the CDs? He's been taxed on it along the way. Not on the principal. He's being taxed on the interest.
2: Okay. So then if he were to pay off the mortgage, then... He wouldn't be able to use the credits. Yeah, what he's basically doing is taking
1: the rest of his equity and moving it under his roof with him, and that will never grow. No, he ought to have that money redeployed elsewhere, either in other mutual funds or partnerships or treasuries or something, and he ought to go ahead. And actually, if I were he, looking at his situation, I might want to even recommend he increase his mortgage, certainly not pay it off. Okay. The whole key on wealth accumulation is getting your equity and your money and your net worth and your wealth moving for you as long as you look at your total situation, have the comfort level, have your emergency funds, have all those things taken care of. Then then, yeah, you want to you want to look at your total picture.
2: And if this sounds familiar to your situation, call the office in Raleigh at nine one nine eight seven two seven thousand. That's nine one nine USA seven thousand. Let's take another call, Doug.
1: Mary Ann, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you?
3: Can you, on a trust, designate, say, like at the end of a year, that a certain amount of the trust be given to the charity at the end of a year on a yearly basis? Can you do that?
1: Yes. As a matter of fact, what uh, the the key are the six players of the Charitable Remainder Section 664 Trust. The donor, which in this case I guess would be yourself, right? Yes. Yes. And if you set up such a trust, you want to name yourself as the trustee, and you want to give yourself certain powers, and that would be one of the powers that you would give yourself in the trust document, the power to take out part of either the principal or the income from your trust to distribute to charities during your lifetime at the end of each year, or you could say, which is the more common way, let's wait until my death In the meantime, I want it all to grow as a retirement plan for me and pay me income, and then there'll be a bigger gift at the rear end for the charity. You can do it either way.
3: I have been listening to you for a number of weeks and have just been intrigued by some of the information that you've shared on ways that um, we fail to reap the benefits of uh, interest
1: who was that, that movie actor, Linda, who said, make my day? She just made my day.
3: <laughs> Thank you,
2: Marianne.
1: <laughs> I'm glad someone out there is listening. <laughs>
3: well, it, it's um, it's something that I've reached the time in my life where I realize I have not been wise in uh, controlling my money. I always felt like I really didn't have an estate because it was more or less just very little in savings. And I now realizing that I would have had more money if I had just controlled it in a more logical way. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, my question to you was, in paying tithing to my church each week or each month, I could take the 10% of my income and put it in the charitable trust, Mm -hmm. which could be to my church, Uh and uh, I would draw an interest off of that, and then at the end of each year, in order to pay my tithing on a yearly basis, At the end of each year, I could designate it that this amount of that money went to that church. But in the meantime, I would be building that money through the year and receiving an interest back from it. Yes. Is that correct?
1: Yes, that's exactly correct. You can do it any way that you want. The percentages, you want to... It's sort of like chickens and eggs. The chicken has to be big enough to produce the kind of eggs we want. But... The classic way to do what you're talking about would be maybe to, let's say a person has, uh, oh, I can think of so many different types of things that Linda and I have done in the way of these types of trusts for clients. That number at the office, by the way, is nine one nine Let's say a person happens to have a piece of real estate that they would like after they have passed away, they would like it maybe to go to some charitable cause, all right? Well... They can give this real estate to this charitable trust. The charitable trust can sell it 100% tax-free and avoid all the capital gain. Let's say now maybe there's $100,000 or $200,000 of cash in this charitable trust. It can then be reinvested by the trustee, namely yourself, into mutual funds that are producing a nice income. The charitable trust pays you income through the year, and the trustee is given the right at the end of the year to take whatever percentage he or she chooses, and make that as a distribution to one or more of the charities such as the church tithing that you're talking about.
3: There's a tremendous amount of interest lost that people could acquire through handling their money in just a different fashion from what they understand. The interest on that, on 10% of your income over a period of time, would be quite a nice little saving.
1: It's very nice. You know, the, it's, it's the concept of social capital. Many people don't understand. They think of taxes as this horrible thing that they're facing, but taxes isn't going to a person. Taxes is going to help certain parts of society theoretically, and our capital is composed of both what we own for our own consumption and what we owe to society. That part that we owe to society is called social capital.
2: That's the part you can't
1: keep. That's the part that you can't keep.
2: But we've discovered a way that you can control it. Right. Because basically what happens, Marianne, is uh, folks that implement this strategy can now find a way to increase their income. You can increase your income. You can also, along the way, reduce your taxes. You can empower your family. You can also impact your community and perpetuate your values.
1: All by learning the principles of social capital. But most people simply just write a check to the IRS each year. And don't even realize that they have the power to direct it, to do what they want to do for society.
3: In a financial statement, would the money in the charitable trust show up as an Mm -hmm. asset? No.
1: Well, that's a very good question. The principal does not, but the income does. The income is a transferable asset. You can actually assign your interest in that income stream over. Now, let me say this. It's used in both ways. I have seen clients going through divorce who want to make sure that it is not able to be assigned and not touchable and many people use it to avoid potential litigation issues and liability issues. On the other hand, I know others, which is more common, to where they want it to be seen as an income stream and they want it to be seen as a valued asset on their financial statement and yes, it is. It's the discounted future value of basically picture... You've got a bunch of chickens in chicken houses, and you're going to live 30 years. You've got to figure out how many eggs are those chickens going to lay over the next 30 years and then discount them back to present value. You know, how many chickens would it take today to lay all those eggs in one year, and that's the value of the discounted income stream on your financial statement.
3: Thank you. I really enjoy your program, and I appreciate the information.
1: Well, thank you for calling, Marianne. I hope we can help you.
2: If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919 That's 919-USA-7000. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Well, Doug, I speak to so many people at the office that purchase a mutual fund or some investment vehicle that they are not real clear about. And isn't there a gap between education and the purchase of these vehicles?
1: You know, Lynn, it's a really good question you're asking because it's probably the biggest Problem we're facing today. There is a financial illiteracy out there and people seem to think that buying Investments is sort of like going into the donut shop and I think I'll buy myself a you know uh, a Frosty cream or a blueberry or a raspberry and I don't have to do anything about it I'll just buy it and take a bite and see what it tastes like. Well, it doesn't work that way Uh, Investments need to be understood and you don't understand them unless you're educated and you're not educated unless somebody educates you. And unfortunately, most of the purchases of investments today are not being done through an educational process. They're being done through a sales process.
2: And there is a difference, isn't there? There's a major difference. a gross difference.
1: difference. I mean, it's sort of like uh, somebody calling me and asking me, um, what do I think uh, about his wife? And I say, well, what do you mean what I think about your wife? Don't you know? It's your wife. You should know about your wife. And he says, well, I don't know. I just got married. I don't know anything about her. Well, that's an absurd position, but it's the same absurd position. People say, what do you think about my investment? And I say, well, I don't know about your investment. What'd you buy it for? What do you know about it? And he says, I don't know anything about it. So the obvious question is, well, why'd you buy it? <laughs> why'd you buy it if you don't know anything about it? But I would have to say in the years and years of practice that I've been in this profession, 90% of the people that I ask the question, why do you own this particular investment? Their answer is, well, my stockbroker told me I should get it. And so it was just sold to them.
2: Yeah, I remember that one time we had one client who thought they had bought a mutual fund and they actually had bought an annuity. Right?
1: Right. <laughs> You're exactly right. People don't know.
2: So just to, just to close that, um, people really should understand what it is that they're buying why they're buying it, and have an overall strategy as to what they're doing in the short range and in the long range. Right, Doug?
1: In my opinion, there are four things that they should know about any investment. And if they know these four things, they will know everything they need to know. And what are those four things? The first thing they need to know is what are the features of the investment. Now, features are guarantees In other words, you want to know whether you're buying a bond or a stock. You want to know whether you're buying a piece of real estate or whether you're buying a piece of equipment. You want to know what it is that you're buying. What are the features of the investment that are guaranteed? Okay. Second thing, you want to know what are the expected benefits?
2: What are the expected benefits?
1: Now, benefits can never be guaranteed. Well, they can be, but you want to know what are the benefits that are expected but not guaranteed? Okay. For example, you buy a stock. Is, do you have any guarantee that when you're going to sell that stock, you're going to sell it for more than you paid for it?
2: No guarantee. Right.
1: You could lose your money, couldn't you? True. But you buy it because of what reason?
2: Because you're hoping to make a profit. Or right. Or you're hoping it will That's
1: an, That's a benefit that you expect. You expect you'll sell it for more than you paid for it. All right. Another investment you may buy is a bond or CD. Why do you buy that bond? You want interest. You want income from it. You see, that's different from selling it for more than you paid for it. That's an expected benefit, okay? So you need to know what are the features that are guaranteed. Number two, what are the benefits that are expected but not guaranteed. Number three, you want to know the risks. What are the risks that it's necessary for you to be willing to take to get the benefits that are expected? And number four, you want to know the cost to get in. Any commissions or any loads, what's the cost to get in to be able to play the game?
2: Okay. If you would like some more information on this, I'll be happy to either send you some information or discuss it with you further, and you can call me at the office, and the number is eight seven two seven thousand. that's USA 7000, and I'll be happy to do what I can to answer your questions.
1: Going to help you, Rob. This is Doug Lewis with Money Matters.
4: Doug, I've got a question about the amount of cash one should have on hand in the event of whatever emergencies or whatever. And so oftentimes you hear about three to six months worth of living expenses that you should maintain. Mm-hmm. My wife and I both work and we have approximately equal salaries. Do you then say you should have one and a half to three months worth of living expenses? or Because it's very unlikely, since we work for different companies in different industries, that we would both. Have something happen to our job?
1: Tell me a little bit about yourself, Rob. How much do you make?
4: Um, about sixty-five thousand dollars. And your wife? Fifty-seven.
1: Children? Two. Two children. Ages? Uh, your ages? Pardon me? Y'all's ages?
4: Okay, <laughs> Thir- thirty-five and thirty-three.
1: Thirty-five and thirty-three, and the children therefore are young, right?
4: Yes, um, three weeks and almost three years.
1: All right, are both of your incomes salary income or either of you on commission? For the most part it's salary, for both of us. Both of you are on salary income. Do you have any idea what your lifestyle is amounting to in the way of living expenses? Per month. All right, let's take the your recurring monthlies. Ballpark, what are you spending monthly, do you know?
4: Maybe $4,000.
1: All right, $4,000 a month. Now, what about your non-recurring, and this is always the tough one, vacations, trips, charitable gifts, uh, clothing, things like that. Uh, have any idea what you spend on a yearly basis?
4: Oh, maybe another 5000 to
1: $6,000. That's low for your uh, income yeah, level. You're
4: right. It, it's probably more uh, you, eight, eight
1: to $10,000. All right. So if you're taking $10,000, let us punch that out and see what it that... so, what we're saying is, at your income level, so you're making a combined income like you say of about one hundred and twenty thousand, right? Right. All right. At that income level, and if you've got a fairly predictable or stable income, yeah. all right, you could go ahead and say take your four, which is your monthly, take that extra thousand, I uh, which is five. Okay, and then you can say, all right, I'll keep between, like you said, you'd multiply somewhere between three and six. That's your starting point. That's where you begin. Okay. Now the question you're asking me is, should I? Do I need to keep six times five is thirty thousand dollars liquid? Right. Or do I need to keep fifteen thousand or less? Right. All right. First of all, strike the thirty thousand. No, you don't need to keep thirty thousand dollars in an emergency fund Let's define emergency fund, Rob. An emergency fund should be in a money market account. Right. Okay. All right. So I would say you should have a minimum of fifteen thousand in a money market account. Okay. But that depends upon the composition of your investment portfolio, which has a liquidity factor also. Right. I generally, what what kind of assets do you have in your investment portfolio?
4: Most of our investments are rather illiquid because they're comprised of 401k plans and IRAs and the remainder in a a joint brokerage account comes to $20,000, something like that.
1: Okay. It doesn't sound real good to me because I'd want to eliminate the 401k from the issue because you can't touch it. Right. right? IRA is the same way. Right. The IRA, you can touch it, but of course, you don't want to touch it. Right. Okay. So if all you got is $20,000, what you should be focusing on is the construction of a balanced portfolio for yourselves. And I think I understand now why you're concerned about how little needs to be kept apart in your emergency fund. Right.
3: You're listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Call to make an appointment with Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner of Lewis Financial Management. Call 919-872-7000 or visit our website, dougandlinda.com. You
1: really want to start on a pay-yourself-first plan. And what I what I mean by that is you'd want to go ahead now and take the four thousand once you do a living expense analysis. And if you'd like to call me at my office uh, during the week, I'll show you how to do this a little more in depth. But just your guideline principles are: take your recurring monthlies, not your non-recurring. Okay. Subtract those from your net, and what net take-home, and what's not being sent into what's not there that 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 margin there should be going into an investment portfolio first okay especially at your income level uh i would not go ahead and now in the construction of that investment portfolio i'd want about 50 50. i'd want about 50 in non-liquid investments and 50 in liquid investments and of course you also want to make sure that you've covered your college education fund right Uh, yeah you've got you've got to make all the pieces dovetail together and I'd be happy to go ahead and send you some information uh, in each of these areas or at least give you a little direction on how to get started yourself if you call me at my office. We
4: have started out with college education funds utilizing zero-coupon bonds. Um, and the idea there was using something that we viewed as, as very safe, although it's extremely volatile. It's right. our idea being that we buy the zero-coupon bonds, approximately $20,000 in each of the children's names, and we purchased these before they were even born and place them in their names as soon as they were born, as soon as they had Social Security numbers, and then starting to accumulate assets in our names because there's no tax advantage after approximately $20,000 for the children. Um, how do you feel about zero-coupon bonds as a, a partial means of funding a college education? Well, be Very
1: partial. Okay, uh- the the question we're starting backwards with the question again just like in financial planning for yourselves i don't want to look at liquid versus non-liquid i want to start with the need Mm-hmm. I'm always starting with the need that's why I want to do a detailed analysis of living expenses on yourselves and the children I'd want to do a detailed educational uh, um, uh, study of what's the need going to be. We'd start with what kind of school, public or private, uh, in state or out of state, like what your goals are we'd run a compos- we'd run an analysis to find out what you're going to need. Once I've got that target number, then I can come backwards. Uh, in terms of the vehicle it really depends again on how I'm going to diversify that portfolio generally I don't like zero coupon bonds for uh, uh, for certain types of situations number one they are very volatile uh, they are high risk the risk is the use of the capital the risk is that you hold the thing all the way to the end and do it, because then you've been far too conservative for a couple of young folks in their 30s making $120,000. Mm-hmm. You know, you, then you're thinking more like, a, you know, like, a, like an 85-year-old retiree. <laughs> okay. On the other hand, the speculative nature, I do like for people in your income and your age bracket, but the big trick is, when do you sell? How do you know when to get out of the thing? Right. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> Okay. Uh, but um, the risk is general. In general, I don't. I don't mind them for what you've said because, you know, of where you're at, but I'd want to get the number of what I'm targeting towards. You see what I'm saying? Yeah.
2: If you'd like any further information, I can send you some. Just call me at the office. That number is eight seven two seven thousand.
1: Okay. Rob, I hope I've answered your questions. Anything else? No, you provide a valuable service, <laughs> and I appreciate it. You're sure welcome, Rob. Okay. Call me at the office, and I can get a little more into your own specifics. All right, great. Thank All right. You. Bye-bye now. We had another caller that just called in who wanted to know about the advantages and disadvantages of leasing versus purchasing an automobile. And uh, quite frankly, I wish I were able to go over his numbers with him because there's no hard and fast rule for each individual person. In other words, it's going to be a different rule according to your finances. But generally, uh, if you're going to be financing a car, I've discovered that Your question should be, where is my payment the least? Usually, the payment on a lease is less than a payment on a finance because at the end of the lease, you don't own the car, whereas at the end of a finance, you do own the car. Now, that says that the lower payment with the lease means that you have the ability to invest the difference. If you have the discipline to set up an automatic, what we call a pay-yourself-first investment plan, with the difference, then you can accumulate over the period of the lease enough money in many cases to where at the end of the lease, you now have a choice. And that choice would be buy the car and you're now buying a used car and very often you're buying it for half what you would have paid for it if it was new or trade it in, for the next car that you lease and continue making lease payments.
2: Yeah, I've I've seen oh, you know every every week you see something in the media whether it's on the, in the newspaper or somewhere um, zero down and 189 a month or 200 a month drive away, and I guess if people have cash flow problems, as you said, Doug, um, you want to make sure that your payments are where they're going to be the lease. because um, if you if you take alone where you're financing the vehicle don't they generally expect some kind of a down payment
1: well there's the down payment issue that's one that's one question but it's not so much a matter of the of the payments being less it's that where the money is going in other words let's say that you were going to be spending five hundred dollars a month i'd rather you put 200 a month to the car and 300 a month into a mutual fund i can think of one client for example and in this client's case uh, she wanted to buy a, uh, a a luxury car. She was pretty sure she wanted to keep this thing for many, many, many years. So therefore, we looked at the lease numbers for her versus the purchase number versus the finance numbers. And in her case, uh, she could have liquidated enough of her investment portfolio and written a check to buy it. But what we discovered was, if she put, let's say it was a thirty thousand dollar uh, vehicle. If she put thirty thousand dollars into um, a, a mutual fund, and under different assumptions we used, and she took a four-year lease on her car, we found out that at the end of that four-year lease, she could buy the car for about fifteen thousand. So she's really buying it at half what she would have paid for it new, but she had four years' growth on the mutual fund on the thirty thousand dollars. And so what actually turned out to happen was with the 4 years her 39 her 30,000 became 44,000 at the end of the 4 year lease she went ahead and she used about $15,000 from her 44,000 that she'd accumulated and she ended up owning the car plus having about $29,000 extra in her mutual fund whereas if she'd done it the other way she would have just had the car and not have had the 29000 the mutual fund. So so really, it's the time value of money in a case like that. Uh, I'm liking the leases more and more, but again, there are certain situations where we recommend that we do not do the lease.
2: Okay. If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919 That's 919-USA-7000. Well, Doug, there was an article that I saw that had to do with whether or not extra insurance is the best policy for consumers. There's a lot of different types of policies out there on the market today, right?
1: You're right, Lynn. They really are. And insurers are selling you these policies at a rapid rate, selling them policies that you really don't need. You know, they're selling everything from extra insurance on
2: uh, your pet's health to school accident policies for children. These fast buck artists are certainly targeting the vulnerable consumers in America, and there are some consumer reports that say that 10% of dollars spent for insurance last year was wasted on unneeded life, health, home, car, travel, and entertainment policies, and even insurance that pays if it rains on your vacation, right?
1: Right. As funny as it may seem, Linda, it's a really sad story, and there are a lot of fast buck artists out there that are peddling insurance that people don't need, and the buyer needs to beware. The trick for the consumers now is really to purchase only enough insurance to fit their own needs.
2: Many people buy insurance with the idea that the more you get, the better.
1: Well, the five areas of coverage that are most needed are health insurance, automobile insurance, insurance homeowner's insurance, or maybe renter's insurance, disability insurance, and life insurance if you have dependents. If you don't, you don't need life insurance. Anything besides this is really suspect. And I think people just, they ought to learn just to say no.
2: You know, there's a, there's a whole laundry list of policies that uh, people should avoid. Uh, everything from insurance on your contact lenses to car rental coverage if you're covered elsewhere. And a lot of junk policies are sold on emotion. For example, air travel insurance and cancer insurance are included in these as classics, right? Well,
1: insurance, Linda, should protect you from catastrophic losses. So you have enough life insurance to protect your family's lifestyle, and you pay off your mortgage balance and other debts if you die. You don't need mortgage insurance or credit life policies that pay your debts if you die, in my opinion. And I really think that the buyer needs to beware. There are certain types of insurance I think that you ought to not buy. For example, don't buy air travel insurance. Don't buy life insurance if you're single. Don't buy life insurance if you're married and have no children and your spouse has a good job. Don't buy life insurance on your children. Don't buy policies that pay if you're hurt or killed in a mugging. Don't buy cancer insurance, don't buy rental car insurance if you have an alternative, don't buy mortgage insurance, don't buy credit life insurance, don't buy health insurance on your pet, and don't buy health insurance that pays $100 a day while you're in the hospital in lieu of comprehensive insurance.
2: And probably the best thing, Doug, is to work with a financial planner, right? Right. It can help you determine uh, what are your needs and uh, how, how to uh, solve those needs.
1: That's the story, Lynn.
2: And that number to call is eight seven two seven thousand. That's USA 7000 in Raleigh. Let's take another caller, Doug.
1: Hi, Floyd. This is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can I help you?
0: Yes. Um, I was calling uh, to inquire about uh, maybe for the person who doesn't have a lot of funds to invest. And this new starting off, starting a family... What do you have any any suggestions on what types of funds I need to look into to uh, invest?
1: Uh, well let me see. H- how old are you, Floyd? 35. You're 35 uh-huh. and you and you're married. Yeah. And how old's your wife? Uh, same age. 35. Uh-huh. And, and are you both working? Yeah. What's your income?
0: Uh, I would say somewhere between uh 65 and 70,000 jointly.
1: All right. And do you have any children? One. Okay.
0: One one
1: uh, son. All right, one uh-huh. one little one. You're just starting, and you've yeah. got sixty-five to seventy thousand income. Do you right. know what your living expenses are? No, I sure don't. Not, well, the, not the, in front of me. All right. Well, one way to start, a very simple way to start, is to get a hold of a book called The Wealthy Barber. Okay and the wealthy barber has a uh, system in there where you take ten percent of every paycheck that you take home uh-huh. and you just put that into your checking account and then your checking it ac- I'm sorry you have drafted from your checking account ten uh-huh. percent of your paycheck right and that goes directly into a mutual fund that you choose now at your age if you're just starting You could probably pick a growth and income mutual fund, and I think that would be the safest place to start with a growth and income fund.
0: Sure. Okay, that sounds great. I think I'll look into
1: that. You're sure welcome. I don't like to mention specific funds on the air, make specific recommendations, but if you call my office during the week, Floyd, we may be able to help you a little more. Really? Okay, well, I'll do that then.
2: Yeah, that number, uh, Floyd and Raleigh, is Uh 919-872-7000. Okay. That's USA-7000.
0: USA-7000. Yes.
2: Thanks for calling, Floyd. Thank you. Take care.
0: Bye-bye.
2: Doug, you know, uh, we get a lot of folks that call in like Floyd that are starting out and they want some direction. And it is important to start early, isn't it?
1: Well, the interesting thing is, Linda, that sometimes I can look at a person like Floyd who's got a 70 or $65,000 income, and he's 35, and I can run the numbers, and by him starting at this age, by the time he's 65, sometimes he can accumulate far, far more than a person who starts at 58 and is making 200,000 a year. It's an amazing thing what time is. Time's that that magical component that's added to money and interest rates and growth rates that produces the compound rate of return. It's so astonishing that Einstein called it the eighth uh, wonder of the world, actually. Years and time is what does it. And although Floyd doesn't have a high income, still he has time.
2: I agree, Doug.
1: Well, that's all the Money Matters we have time for today. So we want to thank all our listeners for joining us and for any other questions you may have, call my office during the week And we'll set up an appointment to meet with you personally. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. And we'll be back next week on this same station at the same time. In the meantime, have a great week. And remember, your money matters because your financial future is at stake.
0: You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug and Linda in Raleigh at 872-7000. That's USA-7000. Listen again next Sunday at 6.05 for Money Matters with Doug and Linda Lewis on 680 W.